Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Years ago, a good friend of mine, um, a guy named Daniel Felton, invited me to go surfing in Homer, Alaska. I didn't own any of the right gear. In fact, I had like this super old wetsuit that zipped up the back, and so I put on like long johns and some fleece and that kind of stuff under it because it was so thin, and in Homer, you get surf in the wintertime almost exclusively because it's storm surf, and so when the winds are blowing out in Cook Inlet, then you'll get surf in Kachemak Bay, and um, it's usually like a washing machine. My son and I would go out together. I can remember, though, the very first time that Daniel Felton took me, he took me off of the spit there in Homer, and it was like negative 1,000 degrees out. Um, there was, there's no exaggeration, there was slush on the water. Salt water freezes at a lower temperature, just in case you didn't know. Like, it was cold. We got out there. I was having a blast um, until the wetsuit that was not designed to have all these layers of clothing underneath it decided to blow out in the back, and all that water just rushed. It was, it didn't stop me, though. And whenever we'd go out and you'd get down to Bishop's Beach and you'd see the surf coming in, it looked like a washing machine. I, I mean, just pummeling the beach. And in case you don't know this, the beaches in Alaska are not like the beaches in Hawaii in numbers of different ways, but one of the primary ways is that they aren't sandy. They're boulders in the water. So you get rolled up and uh, dive into a wave, and you can expect to get pummeled all the way to the beach. Um, and, but, you know, I think normal people would be like, no, that's just too much. The cold, the pummeling, all of it. To me, it's like, can we do it again? I would literally show up to the office at the church in my wetsuit um, often. I know it was probably inappropriate, but I couldn't help myself because the waves were good, but I had to get to work, and so I'd go out and surf for a little bit. But I discovered that when you first get to the beach, um, the waves are just pounding it, and you're thinking to yourself, there is no good spot to jump in. Like, eventually, you just have to go for it. And so often, the first couple of times, you go in, you got your board, which is way too big anyways, and you go to launch yourself in, and you will just hit a wave head-on, it'll flip you over backwards and swipe you back up to the beach. you got to try it several times. And, but what I discovered is that the only way to get out there into it is just to dive in. So that's what I'm going to do today. We're going to dive into some things. And from my vantage point right now, and having taught this in the first service already, um, these can be some tumultuous waters that we're going to dive into. You probably know this about me if you've been around long at all. I don't mind pushing buttons and kicking sacred cows. Those things don't bother me at all. In fact, this song that we just sang, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear, I made a commitment a long time ago that this pulpit, this podium, this position that I'm in, I was never going to use it for political agendas. I was never going to use it for partisan politics or any of those things. What that does not mean, though, is that there aren't times where those things overlap in really dramatic ways with God's word. This happens to be one of those times. 
And so with much fear and trepidation, a little bit of excitement, we're going to jump into some things in the next little bit here. And I want to give you this on the front end because we're going to be touching on the topic of abortion. And I want you to know, as we come into it, that my intentions, my intentions are entirely that we would allow God to shape our thinking about things that matter to him. And for no other reason than because they matter to him. So I'm going to ask you to keep an open heart to trust my intentions. There's always more you could say than you have time to say, but we're just going to get into it. It's interesting because after a service like this one, um, if you touch on hot topics, right, uh, people will come up to you in one of two camps. They'll come up and they'll say, that was so good and I so appreciate it and finally courage and blah, blah, blah and all that. And, or some will come to you and tell you that you're the Antichrist and you don't know what you're talking about. And I, I just want you to know, um, I don't do what I do for either of those things. That would be living in the fear of man. You don't want to live in the fear of man. I don't want to live in the fear of man. What I want to be is faithful. I want to be faithful because I believe that God's intentions are ultimately good, which brings me to my title, um, which is, um, thank you for your service. There's something you need to know about serving. And next week, we're going to be serving with the Impact Alaska deal. That's going to be just a great time. If you have not signed up yet, hundreds of people just at our churches already have, but I would encourage you to get signed up, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But there's something you need to know when it comes to this issue of serving, because often, um, as a church leader, I think about serving in the context of, are you serving what we're doing here on a Sunday? But there's all kinds of ways to serve, but here's what you need to know about serving. It's this, we don't get to decide if we will serve someone. We only get to decide who we will serve. Because the reality is, we will all serve someone. We'll either serve ourselves, our own interests, our own ambitions, our own desires, our own thoughts. We'll either serve ourselves, we'll serve our adversary, our enemy, um, or we'll serve our maker, our creator. But when all's said and done, we don't actually get to choose if we will serve someone. We actually only get to choose who we will serve. It's a really important thing to consider because inevitably we will serve one of those three. Um, my mom's dead. My mom's here in this service. They just got back from... Louisiana, Tennessee, old stomping grounds. My mom's dead. Come on. Um, my mom's dad um, served in, wait for it, World War I. Yeah, I'm not old. He was old, okay, just to be clear. Um, served in World War I. Here recently, Julia Bowles was helping me do some research and find out um, uh, when he took off, what ship he left on, when he came back. My dad's dad, my dad is here also, my dad's dad served in World War II. He was a prisoner of war, actually, in World War II. We recently were looking at a bunch of articles about the POW camp that he was in, and we have all of those records. And, and my dad, my dad served in Vietnam. Today, when you meet someone in the military, and I think today is actually um, Police Officer Appreciation or Recognition Day, isn't it? Am I right about that? Anybody know? Great, none of you know either. Well, now I don't feel so bad. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, but, but usually, um, there are all kinds of benefits and privileges, right, um, uh, when you have served in our military. And so people will frequently say things like, thank you for your service. 
when you go to get on an airplane, this option is given to get on early, like anyone wants to get on an airplane early. I don't know if that's a benefit, but uh, thanks for your service. And I would imagine that both of my grandfathers, uh, there was a very different view when they returned from the war. But for my dad, when he returned from Vietnam, there wasn't a whole lot of thanks for your service going around. In fact, he told me a few years ago, he said, um, when we came back, they instructed us to take off our uniforms when we got home because people weren't real happy about what was happening over there. And then my dad said this to me. And if you know my dad, he doesn't say a whole lot. So it's like E.F. Hutton, I listen. When... He said, I actually didn't care what anyone else thought about my service because I didn't do it for them. It wasn't my motivation. You want to know why I went? I went because I believed it was the right thing to do. That's what's interesting about that. Often, our motivation, the why we serve, will actually tell us something about who it is we're actually serving. Our reasons for the things that we do for the service that we give in any environment, really, when you begin to really look into it and you discover that if I'm not appreciated for it, I won't do it anymore, you begin to discover who it is that you're serving when you discover why it is that you served. There's a truth in this, and it's this, why we serve matters as much as how we serve. It's interesting when people say to me things like, um, I'm done letting people tell me what to do. I'm done with people telling me what I must do. I'm done with listening to all of those voices. I'm done with religion telling me what to do. I'm done with men telling me what to do. I'm done with politicians telling me what to do. I'm done with all of the, I'm done with science telling me what to do. I'm done with people telling me what to do. And I'll often ask a handful of questions, but they typically go something like this. Um, so where did you discover that you could be done with people telling you what to do? Where did you make that discovery? And they'll usually say something like, well, I've been talking with my friends about it, and they all agree with me, or I've been talking with my therapist about it, and my therapist said that that's what I should do, or um, I've been reading articles online about it, and, and, and I'd ask, oh, who wrote those articles? And then it usually leads me to someplace like this, that um, so, so what you're telling me is that you have been freed from listening to those voices by listening to these voices. And sometimes it's entirely appropriate, but it's at least worth acknowledging that we will all listen to someone. In fact, I would even go uh, so far as to say we don't get to decide if we will listen to someone. We only get to decide who we will listen to. And our willingness to acknowledge that is really important because what I think we mean is um, I actually like what these voices are saying better. I agree with these voices more. My preference is for what these voices are saying. Uh, but we often couch it in language of I've been liberated from all voices, but we don't get liberated from all voices. We all have people who influence us in our lives. It's at least worth acknowledging that that's true. And so, here we go. My body, my choice. This sentiment 
And if you're listening to what everyone else says about the church or whatever, I actually want my girls to believe this. I have three girls. I want them to believe that they have control over their bodies. I actually want them to believe this. I'll tell my girls things like, girls, nobody has the right to touch you inappropriately or force you to do anything. In fact, it's really important that you let them know that and that you don't let them because if they do, I'll have to kill them, (laughs) right? And I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison, but as a dad, buckle up, buttercup, because, right, I mean, like, you feel that, right? Moms feel it, too. I'm not saying it's exclusive to dads. There's maybe a little more aggression there. But I want my girls to believe that nobody has the right to do whatever they want to them. In fact, I would tell my girls, um, no one has the right to make you do what they want with your body. And also, you can't do whatever you want with your body. Those things are both true. You have to understand, when I stand up here on a Sunday, the conversation we're having is a conversation about Jesus, about the scriptures. I feel no obligation to go out and change all the laws of the land because I know this for a fact. You can't legislate morality. You can only punish immorality. That at the end of the day, the way minds are changed is not through law. The way minds are changed is through the power of the Spirit. And so as we're talking, I want you to know what I'm talking to, who I'm talking to, are people who say, I'm following Jesus. That's what I'm interested in. Girls, no one has the right to make you do what they want with your body, but it's also true, girls, that you can't do whatever you want with your body. There are actually two reasons that it sometimes may not be your body, your choice, for any of us. The the first one I'm just going to refer to um, is because it may be against the laws of the land, that there are laws in place that actually put restrictions on what you and I can and can't do with our bodies. No one would make the argument, or at least no one should make the argument, that um, it's my gun, it's my choice, who and what I shoot with it. Simply because I own something, I don't have the right to do whatever I please with that thing. I can't go around my neighborhood just blasting out my neighbor's lights on the front of their houses because I want to get some target practice in. Like, I'm going to go to jail for that sort of thing. Or or my car, my choice. I can decide how fast I'm going to drive it. I can decide over whose lawn I want to drive it, right? Uh, We wouldn't look at things that we possess or we own necessarily in that light. Just because something belongs to me doesn't mean that I'm free to do whatever I please with it. It may be against the law of the land. The second reason is this. It may actually be against the law of love. It may actually be against God's call to love. This one can be a little more challenging. I recognize in a room this size and people watching online, statistically, 28 percent of women have experienced an abortion. I recognize this can be extremely painful and extremely sensitive, but it's extremely important. 
to talk about. I came across an article recently, a lady named Frederica Matthews Green, and yes, that is how you spell her middle name. Frederica had actually served um, in D.C. Uh, for an underground newspaper in 1972-1973. She had taken a semester off of college. The name of the newspaper was Off Our Backs. And they were really and legitimately contending for women's rights, specifically in the Roe v. Wade case. At the time, and she describes it's a brilliant article, it's actually um, in the American Journal, 2016, January is where I came across it, and it's actually a brilliant article, and she touches on all kinds of things that I never even thought about, but one of the statements she makes in the article is that at the time, we would have never imagined what the issue would be today. We were legitimately contending for a woman's right in life and death situations to be able to make what should be an impossible decision, but the right to make that decision in those moments. We did not envision what it is today. She makes several observations. I would encourage you, we're actually going to post it later so you can go find the article for yourself in the American Journal, but she makes some brilliant observations. One of the things she says is, we didn't realize that in passing this as law, federally, and protected, that what we were actually doing is on the lives of many young women increasing the pressure to make this decision. Because now all of the men in their life who want this problem solved are encouraging them in this direction. Their employer, the boyfriend, the parents. Now all of a sudden, all of these external pressures to do what they think is best. Here's what I'm saying. When we talk about the issue of selfishness or self-serving, it's actually an illness that we all possess. But she talks about the moment that her mind changed. She was home from college. It was 1976 at this point. She was home from college. She was at her parents' house, and her dad had an issue of Esquire magazine there at the house. If you don't know what that is, they used to have magazines, and they were paper. You could open them up and, like, read them and stuff. It's pretty cool. There's a copy of Esquire, 1976 there, and in it was an article that she read by a doctor named Richard Seltzer. I'm just going to read you a portion of what she wrote about this moment. She writes, I was home from grad school and came across an article titled, What I Saw at the Abortion. The author, Richard Seltzer, was a surgeon. He was in favor of abortion, but had never seen one, so he asked a colleague whether next time he could sit in. Seltzer described seeing the patient, 19 weeks pregnant, lying on her back on the table. The Doctor performing the procedure inserted a syringe into the woman's abdomen and injected her womb with a chemical solution, which would bring on contractions and cause a miscarriage. A method no longer used because too often the baby survived the procedure, chemically burned and disfigured, but clinging to life. Newer methods such as partial birth and dismemberment more reliably ensure death. After injecting the hormone into the patient's womb, the doctor left the syringe standing upright on her belly. Then Seltzer wrote, I see something other than what I expected here. It's the end of the needle that's in the woman's belly that has jerked, first to one side and then to the other. 
Once more it wobbles, is tugged like a fishing line nibbled by a sunfish. He realized he was seeing the fetus desperate fight for life. And as he watched, he saw the movement of the syringe slow down and then stop. The child was dead. Whatever else an unborn child does not have, he has one thing, a will to live. He will fight to defend his life. The last words Seltzer's essay are these. Whatever else is said in abortion's defense, the vision of that other defense, the child defending its life, will not vanish from my eyes. And it so happens that you cannot reason with me now, for what can words do against the truth of what I saw? I want you to listen to me closely. If you're running around wagging your finger and yelling murderer at people, good luck. Because I don't know anyone who went in. I don't know anyone who went in thinking I'm going to kill my baby. You are not speaking the same language, but what we have done is we have allowed someone else to reframe our language in a way that is not accurate, and we should know better now. I was born in 1973, February 1973, one month after Roe v. Wade passed. My mom, sitting right there, is a pediatric nurse practitioner. My mom could have been a woman who made that choice. I was born in 1973. From 1973, I just want you to see an image of an ultrasound in 1973. For all I know, this could be my ultrasound. It is unintelligible. It gets worse than the old radars we had on the fishing boats back in the day in Prince William Sound. Like, I have no idea what's happening there. But there were certain measurements they had figured out how to take and whatnot. But this was the imagery that we had then. This is an ultrasound from now. Could we have known better in 1973? Sure, we could have. Should we know better now? You bet we should. The reason I started the way that I did today is because there's something really important in this room that I want you to know, that um, in this room there is no room for shame. Because this is actually only a symptom of a sickness that we all have. It's one of many ways that it expresses itself. Maybe you've heard people before say, um, if Christians were against abortion, then they should adopt more children. Anybody heard that? I would invite you to come over to my house, because um, I don't know that we could do any more right now. Um, but but I, I'm just, here, here's what I want you to know. Often, this is what's referred to as a straw man argument. I'm going to build an argument, but what you don't hear what you typically will never hear when this argument is brought up is this, that globally, worldwide, roughly 260,000 children are adopted every year in other nations, in this nation, but more than half or right around half of those children are adopted by Americans. 127,000 of the 260,000 kids that are adopted globally every year are adopted by Americans. 2% of Americans have adopted a child. That's 5.9 million Americans have adopted. 
Here's what's really interesting. Of that 5.9 million who have adopted, 3 million, 700,000 of those are practicing Christians. Not Christians by identification, but identify themselves as practicing Christians. You understand, right, that the vast majority of children that are actually adopted are adopted by Christians, and there are thousands of practicing Christians who are actually waiting for infants to adopt. It's a straw man argument. You're told that you should do more, and then nobody tells you what you're actually doing as part of the Christian community because adoption is actually central to the message of the gospel. Like, we've all been adopted by God. It's by the spirit of adoption that we cry, Abba, Father. Like, it's central to the message of the gospel. The church has been doing it since the formation in the book of Acts and the empire of Rome all the way until this very moment. You know how I feel about all that. Anyways, my point is this. If you just allow those things to be said without actually looking at the facts, you could begin to think they're true. I'll give you another one. So what about the situations where rape and incest have taken place? Most people I know actually have some parameters within which this decision is okay with them. But what about those situations? And here's what I'll tell you. That accounts for 0.17% of all 61,600,000 abortions since 1973. 0.1%. If you took that and all medical reasons, not life and death, all medical reasons, you would still end up with 98% of abortions were for personal reasons. Non-medical, non-life-threatening. 60,200,000. Eight states currently have what are called no-restriction abortion laws, late-term no-restriction abortion laws. District of Columbia, Oregon, Vermont, New Hampshire, Colorado, New Jersey, New Mexico, and Alaska, up until the day of birth. Here's why I bring all this up. If our personal rights and privileges become our highest priorities, we will sacrifice anything we need to in the worship of those idols. If our personal rights and privileges become our highest priorities, if we serve ourselves, ultimately we will sacrifice anything we need to in the pursuit of those idols. Psalm 106, 34. Israel mingled among the pagans and adopted their evil customs. They worshiped their idols, which led to their downfall. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, by sacrificing them to the idols of Canaan. They polluted the land with murder. People who would have never considered this in the pursuit of their idols will consider all kinds of things. You're prone to do it. I'm prone to do it. Would you sacrifice your marriage for your addiction to pornography? 
Would you sacrifice someone else's joy for your peace of mind? Would you sacrifice someone else's opportunities for yours? What would you sacrifice in the pursuit of your own personal preferences? Those things are just symptoms of a sickness that we all deal with because we'll all serve someone. We don't get to decide if, we only get to decide who. If we want to know who our gods are, we only need to look at what we will sacrifice to appease them. I know this is a painful topic. I, I want you to know that um, it's only a symptom of a deeper sickness, and I also want you to know that I, of all people in this room, actually step into here fully in need of the grace of Jesus. If I lived my life in shame of the past, I would never move forward into the glory that God has created me and designed me to live in. And here's what I would say to you. No matter what it is, uh, whatever it is, shame off you. That you would hear that from the Lord. He's actually taking us somewhere, but our unwillingness to acknowledge this for what it is may keep us from ever going to where he wants us to go. It's important. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writing, which is interesting because if anyone should be walking around in guilt and shame, it should be Paul. This is the guy whose name was Saul. He was running around actively killing Christians simply because they're Christians, because they put their faith in Jesus, and he was proud of his record. He had a record of all the people he had imprisoned and the people he had stood by while they were stoned to death. This same Paul is writing in Ephesians, and he says this, We will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. It may actually be fair to say for the person who says they're a follower of Jesus that it really should be his body, his choice. No matter what issue we're talking about. Actually, at the end of the day, it's a fundamental Christian belief that you are not your own anymore. He delights in you. He loves you. His plans for you are actually plans that are really, really good if you would just believe him and trust him and you would actually experience the joy and the benefits of them. But when all is said and done, what we've effectively said when we took Jesus on as our Savior is that we took him on as our Lord. The word literally means supreme controller, authority, and you have said yes to being part of the body of Christ. It's his body. That's a good word, preacher. I know, I know, I know it's a hard word, but I'm so glad you said it to me. I know, I'm glad I said it to you too. Uh, because you've got to know this. It's every bit as much for me as it is for you. That was a good spot for an amen, but you guys, you know, there's another service, you can come back for it. No. Which brings me to total loss. 
Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. I'm always amazed at the conversations that Jesus' disciples strike up at the most inopportune times. In fact, on, on a couple of occasions, Jesus has literally just finished the sentence, I am going to Jerusalem to die. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He will die at the hands of the Gentiles. Like, I'm headed to my death, boys. And they will follow that up with a debate about who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. Or they'll have their mom come and petition Jesus for the best seats in his kingdom. Like, it sounds so immature. Because Jesus has been really faithful about teaching and modeling one thing to them, and it's this, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Let me quickly give you three reasons why serving matters to Jesus. The first one is this, because it moves us closer to Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this story, this parable, this allegory about a king and his subjects. And the king has all of his subjects come before them, and he says, I want you to know, he turns to the ones on the right, and he says, it's all of you guys, you're the good guys in the story. He says, I want you to know that you came to me in prison, you clothed me when I was naked, you cared for me when I was sick, you did all the right things. And they reply, when did we do that? Like, I've never seen you in prison. I've never seen you on the streets naked. And here's what he says. He says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. That's why people like Mother Teresa say, if you want to be close to Jesus, you don't need to go to another conference or a worship event. You actually need to be with the poor because that's where he is. What he's really saying is that if you will get involved in serving the least of these, you will actually be drawn closer and closer to me. He wants us to serve because it moves us closer to him. But the second reason is this, because it makes us more like Jesus. That in the act of service, things are revealed in our own hearts, our own desires, our own selfishness, our own desire to be appreciated, our own desire to receive accolades. All these things are revealed when we step into acts of service and continue to do them whether or not we receive any affirmation for it. And so in Philippians 2 verse 4, he says this, don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Here's what I want you to consider. That when we believe that our preferences take priority over God's purposes, we have effectively declared ourselves to be greater than Christ. 
No, my personal preferences are the most important thing. My rights and my privileges are what matter the most to me. We live in a culture that tells you that is true all day long. And yet the reality is in the upside down kingdom, Jesus has declared that that isn't the pathway to life. It isn't even the pathway to happiness or joy or any of those other things that you crave at the deepest levels. The pathway is service. The pathway is laying down your rights and privileges for the redemption of others. Are there things worth fighting for? You bet there are. But fundamentally, the way of Jesus is a way of submission. That's a good word. Thank you, I know. Third reason is this. Not only does it move us closer to Jesus, make us more like Jesus, but it also models Jesus to those who have never met him. I love this passage. It's found in Romans chapter 15, verse 17. Remember, in Romans, he's writing to people who um, live in a non-Jewish world, non-Jewish communities. He's writing to the Romans. They were referred to as Gentiles in the scriptures. He says, I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me. This is Paul speaking, the same guy, right? The murderer. This is Paul speaking. He says, I have great reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God, yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing those who do not know God to him by my message, here's the part, and by the way I worked among them. And there it is. You want to know the reason we're doing what we're doing next week? The reason we're not going to meet in here and we're not going to do all the things that we normally do as highly as we value those things. The reason is that it's really important to be reminded that we were not created to serve ourselves here every week. We were actually created to serve people who are far from the kingdom. We were created to work among them. And the reality is I could preach a thousand great messages, but ultimately what people will be convinced by are not the words that I say, but the actions I perform and the reason that I perform them. It's why it's so important every now and then we need to be reminded that we need to be out there making a difference out there. And this is an opportunity, one opportunity, a rather small opportunity, actually. We put a lot of emphasis on it because we're all doing it together, but it's actually an opportunity to say what matters is how we engage, love, and serve you. And that's why we won't be in it. That's why we won't have an offering that day. That's why we won't do all the things that we normally do. Because I am plagued by this question from the time I came back to Alaska to be serving in ministry, and it's this. If Church on the Rock closed its doors tomorrow, would our community grieve that loss? Would they even know that we had shut our doors Or would it just be us? Would the community actually grieve the absence of our presence in it because we have loved the community, we have served the community? And I would say individually the answer to that for so many in this room is a resounding yes. I get to hear the stories about your generosity and about your service, but every now and then it's real important that we all do this together. And in doing so, I believe that we will be drawn closer to Jesus, we will be made more like Jesus, and we will introduce Jesus to those who may not know him yet. Just stand with us.
we don't get to decide if we will serve someone. We actually only really get to decide who we'll serve. Our motivations matter. And the truth is, if we serve ourselves, it's only a matter of time before we will be enslaved by our adversary. But if we were to serve our Creator, it would only be a matter of time before we experience the deliverance that He has for us. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.